2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Let's pray together and come before the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken, and you've superintended that writing down of what you've said by the working of your Holy Spirit, and made it available to us even now. In the time that we have together, we pray that your Holy Spirit will then carry out an illumining ministry in our hearts that we would understand what it is you've actually said and determined would be made available to us. Make it clear. Make the applications clear. And then as we surrender ourselves afresh to you, give us that enablement from the Holy Spirit to move forward in obedience. And we'll give you thanks as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we spent a couple of weeks, uh, and longer than I was thinking we would, in the uh, opening verses here to to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we were examining in those opening verses, verses 1 to 4, the promise that God gave that he has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given it to us. He's not left anything out. We have everything that we need. The toolbox is full. In other words, if you want to use that sort of illustration, uh, there's no tool we need that won't be there. Everything has been given to us. And and we discovered that it was God's own glory and goodness that was the reason for that. It wasn't because we were so wonderful. But the very nature of God is a giving God. And he wanted to provide for us in this fashion. And so he has provided everything we need for life and godliness. But, of course, the phrase, everything we need, which is a good translation from the Greek here, does not mean everything we may want. Have you noticed there's a difference between the things you may want and the things that you need? And uh, God has said, everything that you need, I've given. And you can take me at my word about that. And he went on then and explained what it was that we need for life and godliness. And as you remember, he was identifying three foundational things. Number one, life and godliness will emerge in our lives if we have a deepening relationship, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, You can't have that until you've been saved. But you can be saved and not have a deepening personal relationship because that's tied to doing those things that would deepen relationship, friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing is, 
you can't find what you need for life and godliness if you try to find it separated from deepening in your relationship with Jesus. You've got to have that. Uh, secondly, he says, life and godliness is going to require a decision on our part to be surrendered, to present our bodies a living sacrifice before him, and therefore, as a result, being able to draw on the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Because there's no growing without the Holy Spirit's enablement. The Holy Spirit is not just some perfunctory phrase we use to describe things to make it sound religious. The Holy Spirit's person, third person of the Trinity, absolutely indispensable for growing as a disciple and being fruitful as a disciple. So the second thing, you've got to get committed to deepening in personal relationship. Secondly, <laughs> realizing God saying there's not another way to grow separate from surrender and dependency upon the Holy Spirit. And then the third thing that we examined last time was life and godliness requires a commitment to growing and knowing what God has promised. His word, his precious and very great promises, are central to the process. You can be a very well-intended person, but if you don't know what God has said, you're fundamentally undercut in the process of growth. Because God doesn't help us grow simply because we are sincere. Now, he wants us to be sincere, but we can be sincere and ignorant. And he says, listen, I, I gave you my precious and very great promises, because you need to know them. And knowing the precious and great promises and trusting them is part of this toolbox. And he end, ended those opening four verses by saying, when we draw upon that toolbox then there's going to be two important outcomes. Number one, we're going to have koinonia with God. Joint participation in life, the Greek word koinonia. Uh, and I hope you uh, understood what we talked about related to that last week. And, and then he also said, and practically speaking, we will escape the corruption that's in the world. We live in a corrupted world. And... Victory over temptation is possible for us, uh, but it's not promised to us except through the avenue that God gives us to find it. Uh, he doesn't help us apart from approaching it in his way. Well, at any rate, that's, that's where we've been. In verse 5, all still part of the same context, obviously, he turns attention from the discussion of what we've been given to a discussion of what we now need to begin. We've been given, now we need to do this and that. Uh, and he says what you essentially need to be doing is choosing to grow. So there's a logic here you don't want to miss it to understand these opening passages in Second Peter. Number one, our faith in Christ, nothing else, has given us right standing with God is a product of being justified and having right standing with God because of our repentance and faith in the gospel. God then has given us everything that we need to grow. Uh, he's not left out anything. So for this very reason, is the way verse 5 begins, so for this very reason, because of what we have in the gospel and what we have given to us as redeemed children of God, for this very reason, get growing. Uh, sort of like, well, you kind of knocked away all the props and had a lot of excuses, Lord, and you just got rid of them all. 
Uh, he's a master at that, isn't he? Uh, every time I come up with something that I think, this is a pretty good reason, Lord, for not doing what you're saying I should do, he just kicks the, kicks the props out. It's like, yeah, you're right, Lord. This was kind of foolish for me to say that and to think that. Uh, there's a logic here. And so what God is saying is, I want you to now choose to do the things that will help you to grow, help you to have that deeper relationship. Uh, for this very reason, do these things. You know, that's the, that's the flow of the idea. We have to choose it. And God is essentially saying to us, I won't force you to do that. I won't make the decision on your behalf to do it. Even though a lot of times people pray that way. You know, Lord, I'm struggling with this. Would you just sort of do something in me that makes me having made the right choice here? You ever try to pray that way? Doesn't work, you know. Uh, No, he says, no, the choice is yours. (laughs) You know, it's going to be here. I'll give you grace and enablement to carry out the choice. But you've got to make the choice. Much like the choice of salvation, by the way. We have to make a choice to build obediently on the foundation and use the toolbox that he's provided for us. A toolbox that doesn't get used is of little help to us. The tools might stay shiny longer, but they're of little help to us, practically speaking. You know, we, God's got a different avenue here to help us. And so in verses 5 to 9, as I read them to you, we learn about seven what he calls qualities but seven decisions, ultimately, that we're called upon to make to grow on the foundation of our saving faith. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. The word supplement here is an interesting choice in the ESV uh, to translate the Greek word. Uh, The Greek word essentially means to provide, or the better understanding of it is to outfit. Think of uh, people getting outfitted for a trail ride or a trail hike or something, you're, you're outfitting yourself. In other words, you're, you're, whatever you've got in terms of hiking boots or whatever, you gotta, you're, you're taking this body of things. You're outfitted by the outfitter for what you're likely to encounter. That's what the word supplement means here. Uh, or another way to think about this word, and I think it gets us closer to what God is talking about here, Think of vitamin supplements. Only a fool, and let me underscore that, only a fool says, I'm taking this vitamin supplement instead of eating. Or I'm taking this vitamin supplement instead of exercising, instead of seeking to carry out a healthy lifestyle. Now, only a fool does that. But it may not be foolish to take the vitamin supplement because what you needed to do was to add to the foundational things you're doing. That's the meaning of this word. God says, you'd be a fool to try to be who I call you to be without being saved. And you'd be a fool to try to move forward in these things that I've called you to be unless you're determining to deepen in relationship with Christ now that you are saved. And, and, and you're trying to do it short of being surrendered and you're trying to do it short of getting into my word. You'd be a fool to do that. But even if you're doing those other things, there's a vitamin supplement here. <laughs> you need to add to it because there's something missing in the basic diet. Did you catch the meaning of the Greek word here? So God says, listen, I want you to supplement something here. 
I don't want you to replace anything. I want you to supplement. Supplement it. Add to it. Now, these supplements don't save us. And these supplements don't keep us saved. Praise God. All of that's rooted in what the Lord Jesus has done for us. There's the wonder undeserved on our part. Now, they serve a different purpose. These things are there to help us grow and mature, which is a whole different question. Well, let's look at these issues. What is it that say God is saying, I want you to supplement? You know, like what's vitamin A, vitamin B, vitamin C? What, what, what is it God says, I want you to add to the basic orientation of your life now that will help you grow? And he starts out, he says, listen, I want you to add, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And by the way, just as another note about that word supplement, in the structure grammatically in the Greek, the word supplement applies to all of the points. He doesn't repeat the word supplement because it's obvious grammatically that it's referring to each one of these things. Supplement with this, supplement with that, supplement with that. So you follow the point there? So that's the reason you don't see the word repeated. Well, at any rate, he says, decide to add virtue to the saving faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Add virtue. Harite. Uh, translated by the word moral, by the phrase moral excellence in the New American Standard Version. Uh, it's the same word, by the way, we encounter in, Ephi- in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and there the word excellence is this word, if there's any excellence, you know, Think about these things. You know, that's where your mind is supposed to be focused. Growth in our life, building on those things that God has given us, begins with a commitment to supplementing that, saving faith in those provisions, with a determination to see moral excellence in our life. Put it a different way. What God is saying, you have, I want you to choose to become a good and virtuous person. Not in order to be saved, not in order to stay saved, but in order to please me. (laughs) I want you to do that. I want you to become virtuous. You say, well, that's sort of an old-fashioned term, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, we live in an era of of moral ambiguity and uh, situationalism and, you know, what's virtue mean anyway? Uh, well, it means excellence, basically, uh, as we're saying. God says, I want you to choose that. A believer who's not choosing fundamentally to want to be living a virtuous life, a life of moral excellence, is fundamentally displeasing to God. He says, how? Oh, does that mean they lost their salvation? No. It means they're well on their way to losing any of the practical, unfolding, day-by-day benefits from being saved here and now. Because, by the way, we were saved not just for eternity. We were saved to make a difference now. And we can do things that keep us safe for eternity that don't make a difference now. And God says, no, no. I want you oriented this way. I want you gearing this way. I want you to become a virtuous person. Say, well, isn't that just going to... If I say that too much, won't people just think I'm going to be saved because... 
I'm, because I'm trying to be good, trying to be virtuous? And the answer is, yeah, if that's all you say. But if you say that the way he says it in the scriptures, then that's not going to happen because you're already explaining the gospel. Now you're explaining why God wants this other stuff. Sometimes people are so afraid of adding legalism to obscure the gospel that they forget to talk about what growing's all about. And God says, no, no, let's not fall into that trap. Let's be balanced, holistic speakers of God's word. So that's where he starts. And he goes, he says, now secondly, commit yourself to this. That's your vitamin, your supplement. I want you to also then supplement your faith with virtue and supplement the virtue with knowledge. And in this case, the word knowledge translates the Greek word gnosis, which has, earlier we encountered the word epinosis, which is a combination of that word, and that really is referring to relational development. But the use of the word gnosis by itself has the idea of of a holistic knowing, both experientially and mentally. We know something and really have engaged ourselves with it. And he says, listen, I, I want you to know about the one who has saved you. And I want you to know the one who saved you. I want both to be happening here. You can't be a disengaged believer. You, you've got to get to know me. You're going to know me through my word. You're going to know me through relationship. In a way, it's kind of affirming what he said earlier, that we needed to know in relationship the Lord, and then also know his promises. So he combines them together in a way here. And he says, hey, listen, there's no growing here unless we're committed to doing that. We've got to know him. We've got to move forward in it. And as in all of these things, God is saying, this is not a choice I'll make on your behalf. I'm glad he sent the Lord Jesus on my behalf, because there's nothing I could do to save myself. But God said, while that is vicarious and substitutionary, there isn't any substitutionary thing here for you. You've got to make the choice to do this stuff, or it's not going to happen. You've got to decide to deepen in relationship. Then there'll be no true maturing apart from God's written word, and no true maturing apart from deciding, I just want to get to know Jesus better. I want to deepen in relationship with him. So I guess you could even say, are you growing in knowledge? How's the supplement coming along here? Then he goes to a third point. He says, listen, I want you to supplement this knowledge with self-control. Literally, supplement it with the control over your inner passions. The Greek word that's translated with self-control here often means intersexual passions, but it doesn't limit to that. Anything that's a driving force within, a driving passion. Uh, And God says, I want you to make a choice. I won't make it on your behalf, but I want you to make a choice that I don't want to be under the control of anything but you. Now, We want to be under the control of anything but God far too frequently in our lives. We want to be under the control of wonderfully nice circumstances so that we feel better because the circumstances are better. 
Or maybe there's even some sort of drug or something that we feel kind of better about when we're on it. I mean, if you can fill in any number of things here. And God says, listen, I, I, I want you to make a choice to be under control. Under control. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, it tells us that this same word in the Greek is part of the fruit of the Spirit. As we are surrendering, the Holy Spirit is enabling our lives. This will be one of the proofs of it, one of the fruits of it, one of the expressions of it. Self-control. And he wants that because when we're not under control, things get ugly quick. Now, it's like I'm not telling you anything new here. I mean, you might not have thought it related to this passage, but the fact is, when I say, hey, when you're, when you're not under control, things don't, look, things don't look so good in your life. Uh, anybody that's been alive more than three weeks begins to discover, yeah, 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 yeah I, I see how that works. I see how this principle functions out. I was thinking of Proverbs 25, 28 in this regard. A man without self-control, now this is Hebrew, but in the Septuagint, they use this Greek word to describe that. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. You ever felt like a city without walls? I have at times, and uh, sheepishly before the Lord. And think, I don't think I'd want to be without walls. I live in a fallen world, and... It's, I need some walls, Lord. You need some walls. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 9.27. Paul saying, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Same Greek word here. He says, I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's not talking about losing his salvation. He's just saying, the things I've been telling other people are disproven by the life I'm living. And people say, walk the walk, don't only talk the talk. You know, it's uh, nothing worse than somebody promoting something and then living something different from that. Uh, That hypocrisy is devastating uh, to the proclamation of truth, by the way. I'm glad it doesn't require perfection, because all of us have been living denials of the truth at times. But there's a difference between stumblingly being a living denial and patterns of life that are living denials. And God says, no, no, I don't want this to be the case in your life. So, add self-control. So here's the question. Are you under control? Are you under control? Because God says, this is the supplement. Uh, I'd say, I'm going to try to do these other things to grow, Lord, but until I grow, I don't want to... Being under control is just beyond me, so I don't think I can do that. And God says, well, wait a second, it's all one. It all comes together. You can't, you can't not decide you want to be under control. Now, there's a growth process, of course, but you can't postpone the decision. Well, and then he says, I want you to supplement the self-control with steadfastness. The Greek word translated steadfast here literally means remaining under control. It's tied to the previous point. God says, listen, I want you to persist in the condition of being self-controlled. Now, why does God do that? Why, why does he, is it redundant that he's saying that? No. But what God is saying is, I'm interested in your life being reflected by more than a one-night victory. 
I want there to be a pattern emerging of steadfastness, of not just this victory today and defeat the rest of the time. I want there to be a pattern, a steadfastness going on. Persist in this condition of being under self-control. A steadfast people. One of the scholars said, if you want to understand this word and the idea of it, describe it as keeping up the struggle for the whole season or through the whole game. You know, it's like that pattern. You leave it all out on the floor. You know, you know don't, don't just try hard for, uh, for this piece of the game and then not the rest of it. You, you stay with it. That's the meaning of this word. Sticking it through the whole season. So, are you steadfast? Determined to play the whole game? Leaving it all on the, on the floor or on the field? Is that how you're approaching your Christian walk? And God says, that's how I want you approaching your Christian walk. I want you, therefore, to supplement all of that I've done for you by commitment to this. I want you moving in that direction. So is that true of you? And he says, then I want you to supplement that steadfastness with godliness. Same word that we encountered back in verse 3 of this book. Uh, Eusebius, meaning a God-awareness sort of life. Uh, Pious is one way to think about it, but that word has other connotations I think are unfortunate. It just means all of your life is lived with a God-awareness. He's always, always in the picture, always in your mind, always the filter through which you look, or the lens through which you're looking. He says, this is how I want you to be. I want you to choose that orientation, devotedness in a way, a God-focus in your actions, disciplined. So, would it be accurate to say 24-7 you have a God-awareness is the lens through which you look at life? That's what he says, okay, well, that's your supplement there. Uh, and, hey, let's be honest. It's possible this morning you came here and said, well, I forgot to take that vitamin. You know, uh, I'll go back, you know, or I ran out. Uh, you know, I'll go to the drugstore get that later. But, um, no, God says, listen, I want you oriented that way. That's how I want you to be. And then he says, then I want you to supplement that with brotherly affection. And in these last two, by the way, of these seven, he shifts away from things that are primarily focused on you personally sort of dealing with yourself and dealing with the world. And he adds to it some things specifically focused on body life. Which, by the way, in itself argues that the church is absolutely necessary. I mean, if you're not involved in a body life, these things have no bearing on you. You've got to be involved in a family, a church family. Well, at any rate, he says, I want you to supplement with brotherly affection. Should be no surprise to you, that's the Greek word philadophios, uh, from which the word Philadelphia comes. It means a family affection, uh, a brotherly affection. Remember back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, same Greek word, 
love each other earnestly from, from a pure heart. I mean, be all the more committed to have phileo uh, or philadelphios kind of love for other people. He says, I want you to be committed in order to see it all kind of come together, I want you to treat the brothers and sisters in Christ in your family, and you need to have a family to do that, but if, you, if in the family, I want you to treat them as brothers and sisters. I want it to be a true family life. That's how I want it to be. In fact, a church that isn't family has no biblical counterpart. I mean underscore that for you. Every passage dealing with local church in the scriptures, if that church is not truly family, whatever else it may be, it has no counterpart here. Because there's always the family overtone to everything the New Testament tells us about it. That's why it uses words like koinonia, which doesn't have any meaning if it's not framed in relationship and in family. Very sobering, really, uh, when you think about it that way. Uh, Well, church that's not family, need I say, is a distortion and travesty of God's intention. Both words appropriate. A distortion of it and a travesty of it. So are you growing in your sense of family? And in treating each other with Philadelphia. And then he says, yeah, let me add another point. I want you to supplement that brotherly affection with love. So he said, well, you're just being redundant, God? And he says, no, I changed the word here. Uh, uh, now I'm not using the word Philadelphia. I'm using the word agape. I want you to supplement that commitment to family affection with Agape. By the way, 1 Corinthians 13 is the Greek word agape. If you want to say, well, what's the difference between that and family affection, read 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, You begin to say, oh gosh, agape is all about selflessness, about putting people's needs above my own. That's that's a real uncomfortable word, Lord. And God says, yeah, I know. Kind of goes against the grain. But uh, that's what I want you to do. (laughs) By the way, Romans 5, 5 says, that agape of God has been poured out into our hearts if we've been redeemed. He says, I know it's not natural, but I filled your toolbox. So you can be discoverable if you're surrendered, drawing upon the Holy Spirit's enablement, etc., etc., etc. He says, "This this is realizable stuff. This is what it's supposed to be choose to deal with each other that way. Now, bear with me another two or three minutes, okay? He ends the passage by saying, let me give you a promise and let me give you a warning about these supplements. The promise is this. If you obey this and decide to supplement, the outcome of that will be fruitfulness and effectiveness. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. If then, notice the structure, if this is true, then this is true. If I possess 
in increasing measure the supplements to add to what God has given, then I will have fruit in my life. In fact, the framing of this is so amazing to me. God says, these qualities will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. And we come to the Lord and say, well, I see a lot of things I've done to keep me from being that way. But you're telling me that if I do this, you'll keep me from being ineffective? Unfruitful? That's a staggering promise from God, brothers and sisters. This is how we ensure that our life will count for something. This is how we ensure that it will make a difference we've been alive. And by the way, it won't make a difference you've been alive in a lot of people's lives. Some people even redeemed, well, as Second, uh, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 5 makes plain, and also First Corinthians will be before the judgment seat of Christ saved, but as through fire, nothing to show for it. It's possible to be redeemed and have nothing to show for it. And God says, hey, I don't want to be that way. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, your life won't be a waste. Don't you want your life to count? I mean, when you really have that quiet moment, don't you want to think, oh, Lord, it did make a difference I've been alive. Not just in the negative, but in the positive. That there's some fruit here. There's a, I've made it, it's made a difference that I'm alive. Now, also, God won't make that choice for us. And he won't compensate for the outcome if we don't make the choice. We say, well, God, you're very gracious. Won't you compensate for my not making this choice? No. You'll be saved as through fire. There's everything will be burned away. That's sobering. He's compensated for my sin by sending his son to die for me on the cross so that I might be redeemed. He has no compensation plan to change the outcome of fruitfulness and value of my life as a redeemed child of God. That substitutes for my refusal to be who he's calling me to be. Sobering. But he does make me fruitful the other way. It doesn't matter whether I can measure that fruit. I can know on the, on the assurance of God's word that when I appear before him, he says, now see, notice, I kept you from being ineffective. I kept you from being unfruitful. And I said, well, some of the measuring devices I was using for fruit and effective, hey, I don't see those. And he says, well, that's, that's understandable. You're you. Your measuring devices are usually all screwed up. Uh, I see life through eternity. And you won't be ineffective or unfruitful. I feel like falling on my knees before the Lord about that truth. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. But he also gives a warning here, and I'll end with this. He says, uh, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. If I make those decisions to say, well, even though you say for this reason I'm to do these things, I don't want to do it for that reason. I'm not going to do it. Then God says, okay, that's going to prove that you're spiritually blind and you're ungrateful to me. He says it'll prove that you're nearsighted and blind. When you're nearsighted, when you look out there some distance, what you see is a blur. Uh, I'm nearsighted, combined with astigmatism, which means I lost both directions, but uh, still. And I can remember when I got glasses, when 
I was in the fourth grade. And my batting average, like a miracle, almost overnight, in Little League, my batting average went way up. Why? Because I could see the ball. You know, by the time it got into focus, it was almost too late to hit. Now, did you hit anything before that time? Yeah, by luck, and also by bad pitching. So you just, you swing anywhere, you're likely to hit something. But by the time I got to fourth grade, you had some people that were saying, hey, I could throw this thing faster (laughs) than I could before. When I saw the ball, it made a difference. Of course, then I got a little bit older and began to see curveballs and discovered you can see the ball and still not hit it. And that, that, was, that was my, well, you know, a little of my athletic career right there. I never could, never could quite get that, uh, get that done. But anyway, nearsighted. Blind means it's up close as a blur, too. You can't see it any place. And what God is saying to us is that if you don't do this stuff, It proves you don't see life properly. Your perspective on life is screwed up. You're both nearsighted and blind. Everything's a blur. Everything's a blur. And I think there's too many times in all of our lives where life's been too much of a blur. And we look back on it and say, oh, I wish I'd seen, <laughs> wish I'd looked at this differently. What was I thinking? What a... And God says, that's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then he goes even further and he says, listen, it will prove that you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. First Corinthians 6.20 puts it this way, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. What he's saying is that if I don't do these supplements, if I'm not approaching this stuff seriously, the wonder of forgiveness, the wonder of cleansing, will no longer continue to grip my heart. I might answer the test right, but that's different. You know, to know the answer is not the same thing as living the answer. All right. And he says, what's going to happen is you. you You'll, you'll essentially be forgetting that wonder, the, the joy that you felt with guilt removed. Because at one point in time, there was a wall between you and God, and forgiveness, the sins were removed, and you feel at peace at long last with God. And, and it's like, what a wonderful difference. And then God will say, you, know, you can lose the joy of all of that. And in fact, even the remembrance of it, you just are not struck by it anymore. And, and what you can also lose is that clear sense of lostness and emptiness when you're not in right relationship with me, having been redeemed. I mean, you can lose sight of what that's about. Because you live in a world filled with people that that's what it is for them. So the contrast isn't striking you anymore. He says, this can happen. You forget the truth about life. And as a result, the likelihood is you conform back to what everything is around you. I don't want to forget. I don't want to forget the cost of my salvation. I don't want to forget the wonder of forgiveness. He's not saying I've lost my salvation. 
but I'm blind. I'm, I'm nearsighted. I, I've lost it. I don't want to lose it. Do you? I mean, it's so easy to get in the dark. God says, listen, there's a consequence here. There's a consequence. So, will you decide to grow? Will you be a supplement type person? <laughs> or uh, will you not? What it comes down to. Well, you've been very patient, and we've gone longer. And uh, But where do I stop in this? I mean, I, <laughs> I kept thinking, well, I could stop here, but, you know, it's like... Like, part of the answer? No, no, let's, let's look at the whole thing. And you know the wonder of this? God loves us even if we're screwing it, and it, screwing it up. He, he, he's always ready to say, you ready to stop being blind? You ready to stop being nearsighted? Are you, you ready to take supplements here? Huh. The problem, God says, has never been that I didn't fill your toolbox. That's always been a given. The issue is, you've been making choices not to draw on the toolbox, not to do the things I want to do. I wish I had less answerability about the number of times I've tried to do something without a tool. But God loves me, and Forgiveness is granted to his people. (laughs) I'd like to not be as foolish. With every week, every month, every year that goes by, I want to have less times where I feel foolish before God. Don't you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your verses, your scripture, your love, but also the decisiveness of the things that you say. Through the working of your Holy Spirit, would you take these things, plant them deep within each of us. We want to be a people for whom fruitfulness and effectiveness is confirmed. Oh Lord, as your redeemed children, keep doing what's necessary to get us out of our blindness that we would not have wasted lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.